when Kristen and I started out in our married life, nothing worked. And um, we had moments, like all of us do, where we had to figure out um, where, where were we going to live? How were we going to live? And um, that, that question had to deal with the fact that I was making $6,000 a year living in DuPage County, Illinois, where people's mortgages are $6,000 a year. We um, had a moment of transition in our days from being uh, children to being responsible, grown adults. And it was in that transitionary stage of life. It was in that moment of transition that prayer came really naturally to us. I needed a job, and I'll never forget the moment that upon starting a search for a job, not even in earnest, not even like giving it the good old college try, but just saying to a friend, hey, I think I'm going to have to look for a job. It was two days after that conversation that I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday. Kristen and I were at my parents' home, and I got a text message. Doesn't seem impressive to you. This is 2020. Back then it was 2009. You didn't get jobs through text messages. And there it was. It was as if God himself was saying, hey, Dan, I see you. I mean, the text said, Dan, we know you're looking for a job, and would you, we've got an opening here at our church. We would love to have you come uh, be a part of this. But, but it was as if, <laughs> on my phone, my iPhone 3, that God himself was saying, I see you. Son, I see you. Has God ever been faithful to you? If, if God has ever been faithful to you, it's because he, cho he chose. He chose to design the way that he imparts his good and gracious gifts to his children. He chose to ordain his good blessings to come to us by prayer. It's so simple. Jesus once said, you do not have because you do not ask. Jim Simbola, who's a pastor in Brooklyn, I once heard him say, you can miss out on what God has for you because you just simply don't take the time to come to him like a good child would be with his father and simply say, God, this is what we need. Prayer Prayer is like first principle kind of stuff. Prayer is the type of thing that if you get this thing right, everything else tends to follow. Jesus prayed in the New Testament more than he ate. His apostles elevated prayer. The early church practiced prayer. And Paul exhorted the Christians in Rome to pray. And here we come today in our week of prayer to Romans chapter 12, and because we're so close to Romans chapter 12, verse 12, in which Paul talks about prayer, we're going to just skip a little bit ahead today and come back to Romans 12, 2 next week. Look at verse 12 with me. We find Paul encouraging the Christians in Rome. 
And uh, sometimes we do this as a church. I know this is a very short thing. This is going to feel very Catholic to you. If you grew up in a Catholic church, there's a lot of up, down, up, down, on your knees, up, down. And, um, but I want you to stand one more time. We just have these few words to read together. But the entirety of what I want our minds to be centered around comes from God's word, and his spirit says this to us. Would you read it out loud with me? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you right now, your people, under the authority of your word. Uh, thank you, Lord, for giving me strength of heart and mind this morning to be able to deliver your word. Give me clarity of thought and concision of speech. And help us, Father, in these next uh, 25, 30 minutes now to just unfold our hearts to you and be encouraged to know that when we come to you, constantly come to you, you hear us and see us. Continue we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What a beautiful exhortation it is for us to begin this week of prayer with. Romans 12, 12. And notice how this verse works. It does not take a lot of unpacking. In the Greek, it's a very beautiful um, verse. It's six words. It's um, three actions, two situations, one solution. The three actions are rejoice, be patient, be constant. The two situations are described are in hope. Are you hopeful for tomorrow? Are you of good disposition? Are you hopeful? Rejoice. Or tribulation, are you, are you in a trial? Are you up against it? Is there something going on in your life that you rather would not be going on? Be patient. And whether you're in hope or in tribulation, the solution to our situation is very simply, pray. Are things going well? Pray. Are things going badly? Pray. This could be the shortest message I ever preach. In various places as I was studying the Bible this week, it didn't really matter what I was studying. I, Chris and I had the privilege of going to the Gary campus on Wednesday and teaching the book of Genesis. Uh, I, I found myself doing some work in the Trinity or in Second Chronicles, John, and then here in Romans. And In every moment of being in the Word, I found myself reminded of the same foundational reason that I must pray. The same foundational reason why Paul gives us that we must pray. And here's what it is. It's because I am a child. You might have thought I was going to say, why should you pray? Well, you should pray because you're a Christian. You should pray because you're a pastor. You should pray because of coronavirus. You should pray because of the Democrats and the Republicans. You should pray for those things. But no, no, no. I, I pray and you pray because we are all children. Like in all the gloriously dependent ways that being a child entails, I'm a child of God. And while God knows my heart, I want to tell it, my father, my heart. And he wants to hear it. And then there's the, you know, these moments in my heart, these other depraved moments, where I actually watch myself act like a child. Spoiled, entitled, rebellious, anxious. And I've observed that prayer is the approach to my father who is not spoiled or entitled or anxious. He's not spiteful. 
And prayer has done much more in my life this week than all the hours of Bible study have combined. It's no wonder Paul tells us so many times in his writings, be constant in prayer. Pray without ceasing is how he says it to the Thessalonian church. Why? Because your father is supremely interested in his relationship that he has with you. Because we are constantly children in prayer, in prayer we are reminded that our powerful, eternal father cares for us. Constantly children. That's what you and I are. We are constantly children. You never outgrow the childlike relationship that you have with your heavenly father. That's like Peter Pan's best dream is that we would recognize the eternal dependence, the eternal fatherhood, and the eternal sonship and daughterhood of all who call on him. So much of prayer, it actually reminds me of childhood. So much of the way that we talk about prayer, the images that we put around prayer, it's very childlike images that come in regards to prayer. And I was thinking about this this week as I was um, watching my kids and studying prayer and thinking about what we would be doing this week and how we can encourage one another. Childhood can be a glorious time in life. I'm curious, how many people think they had a great childhood? Okay, like, that's about what I expected. Like half the room was willing. Maybe you thought it, you just were just lazy. And, and honestly, not everybody did have a good childhood, right? Not everybody in this room, can, we can be honest and say that it was not the ideal that we see in the movies. But childhood is a time of discovery and of development, of long summer days and dark winter nights. It's of campfires and Christmas fires, games of tag and racing your brother. It's a time of sitting in the back seat, way too close to your siblings, Slapping hands and starting fights. Ideally, the season of childhood is marked by the security of parenthood, too. And all of these images that I just kind of mentioned, those are the images that come to my mind as it actually relates not just to childhood, but also to prayer. Prayer is a fire. Prayer is a game of tag. Prayer is a fight. Prayer is secured childhood. And if I could just walk through those this morning with us, I want to just get us to um, a moment of actually praying again before uh, we leave here today. But I just want to walk through those and see how, what does it mean that we would be constant in prayer in the ways that it is to be a constant child. First, I said that prayer is a constant fire. And in our day of Wi-Fi thermostats, we're in danger of undervaluing the worth of a constant fire. For millennia, we have cherished the idea that fire never goes out. Pagan cults, even with the original Greek Olympic Games, would have a fire constantly burning to the gods when they were competing. We brought this symbol back to the Olympic Games in the 1920s, the eternal torch, the eternal flame that you know, sees running through these epic moments, running through cities with a torch, and it lights a fire, and the fire blazes all through the night, all through the games. Yesterday, my family had the privilege of going to the Shedd Aquarium, which was a place that I ran away from as a little kid, and it's really a cool place. And as we walked from Soldier Field to the Shedd Aquarium, I noticed there was a special Olympics torch that had, as a memorial, an eternal flame commemorating the work that is being done in the Special Olympics and the significance of what they're doing. My own hometown of Naperville, Illinois, in the aftermath of 9-11, set up a memorial with an eternal flame 
It was a reminder that we would never forget the lives that were lost. Some of you work in the steel mills. The economic engine of our region. Dependent upon the eternal flame of a blast furnace. So much so that when a blast furnace gets idled in northwest Indiana, it makes the front page of the northwest Indiana Times. We value the eternal flame. Whether it's in celebrations or competitions or memorials or industries, we value this eternal flame. But what is the furnace of our soul? Prayer. And prayer is the constant fire that moves our lives forward. Prayer is a fire that refines our hopes and our dreams and our wills. And prayer expresses our anxieties and our insufficiencies. It it utters the emotions that become silent sacrifices to the God of all constancy. When Paul says be constant in prayer, he means make sure the fire is roaring. I know, I know, I could do that preachy thing, that preachery thing. Whenever a preacher talks about prayer, you, you always just wait for the guilt trip, don't you? That question of like, is the fire roaring in your life? And every one of us would be like, we'd be like, no, it's not. It's not in the way that you're talking about it. I feel like the fire in my heart, I'm on my knees a lot, but I don't know if it's roaring. I bet I could roar some more. I bet I could get some more on there. Woe is me, I'm not roaring enough. Some days I feel like that's me. I'm stacking logs on the fire and I've got face cords left over in case I run out. And other days I come to God feeling like I just am bringing him kindling and leaves. But to measure prayer by our effort or our volume is to misunderstand the purpose of prayer. God wants us to come to him, to approach Some days I come with a heavy burden and it feels like I'm working with charcoal. And other days I come to him with a light burden. And so the better question is not, is the fire roaring in your life? But the better question is, family, are you keeping the fire going? That's the question I want to ask you. Is there a fire going in your heart for God? And if not, good news is because our church is like a a weatherproof match for you today. We're here to help you get that fire started and to kickstart you this week to help that flame be fanned into a fire in your heart of worship and praise and submission and sacrifice to God. I love the story of um, three young preachers in England in the late 1800s who, along with all of England, heard of a preacher named um, Charles Spurgeon. And these young Seminarian students uh, decided one Sunday evening to go to the church to hear Charles Spurgeon for themselves. They had read his sermons in the paper. They wanted to hear, hear him for themselves. And so they um, took time. They heard that if you didn't get there early, you couldn't get a seat. And so they went early and got there before anyone else would be there. And they uh, were entering into the, uh, the, the building. It's a grand old building, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And um, a man met them at the door. And they introduced themselves as young seminary students here to hear good preaching. And the man was delighted. He said, well, then I've got to show you around the church. If you're seminary students, you'll want to see how this thing works. Come with me on a tour. And so he pointed around the uh, sanctuary and pointed to the, the, the pulpit and pointed to everything. And, and, and with glee in his heart, he said, almost like Willy Wonka, uh, but this isn't what you came to see. 
And he guided them then to uh, other parts, the lobby, the narthex, and, the, and he said, but this isn't what you came to see either. Do you want to know what you came to see? And the men looked at each other and said, well, we're here to see Spurgeon, but sure. And the man said, what you want to see is in the basement. Now, I don't know if you ever grew up in an old church building, but there's never been a true statement that what you need to see is in the basement of the church. That is just the creepiest place in the world. There's a reason this church is built with no basement, okay? Yes. But the man insisted and brought them into the basement, and he stopped at two doors, and he looked at the men, and he said, now, you're about to see the most important part of our church. It's our furnace room. The fire is always on. And with that, he opened the door and revealed that inside of this room was a fellowship hall filled with hundreds of people on their knees praying for the service that was about to take place. The men who were there to see preaching were just as surprised when their tour guide stepped on stage to do the preaching, but they later wrote about this one experience that it was the furnace room that had the power, not the person in the pulpit. If you want our church to be hot, it starts not with me. It starts with the prayers of our people coming together, recognizing that prayer ought to be a constant fire in our hearts to fuel the work of the ministry, to fuel our lives. We pray. We pray because it's the furnace that warms our souls. And if ever we prayed in such a way that if we stopped praying, it would make front page news. That's the type of church I think we ought to be. Like, who cares if a blast furnace goes out if prayer in churches has already gone out? Family, let's pray. Let's keep the fire going. It's the first thing. It's a, it's a constant fire. But childhood for me was campfires for sure and a, a pyromaniac, you know, in tendencies. But the bigger thing for me was that childhood was a time of chase and tag. Do you remember going and catching lightning bugs as a little kid? And um, as the, the, the sun's going down, you're chasing your brothers around the yard and trying to grab the lightning bugs and getting them fast as you can. I remember as a kid, I would run for hours and hours, like Forrest Gump, just running and running and running. And now, Pastor Dexter puts me on a treadmill, and I start yelling after 10 minutes. And there's something about a, an adult that doesn't play tag the same way as a kid. I mean, there's a you know, VBS who comes along in the summer, and adults volunteer, and I love that, and you should. And we watch adults try and play tag with kids, and it's just it's awkward. It's just an awkward thing. I love your heart, but you're awkward. But kids, kids get going. Kids get running and moving. And it's like God created kids to do this, just to run and to chase and to play. And um, it's almost as if they were created. It's second nature to them. And part of the beauty of us being constantly children is that we are designed such that prayer would be like second nature to us. To, to be running after God in prayer. And it's not that God is moving away from us, but I think more than anything, he is motivating us and enticing us to come and find me, come to me, come my way. 
prayer, it's a constant chase. It's a constant chase the way that a hunting dog in the heat of a hunt gives its full attention to the chase. I love dogs, um, but bloodhounds are some of the strangest dogs to me. Like a bloodhound is the relative at Thanksgiving who's content being in the corner by themselves until you start talking to them about whatever their hobby is and then you can't get them to shut up. It's a bloodhound. Because a bloodhound is just kind of lazy and then you get them out in the field and they perk up and you give them a scent and you can't get the dog off the scent until it's either tracked down its prey or you called him off. All of its attention, all of its muscle is focused and spent upon the thing it's hunting after. And this is how we should pray. Being constant in prayer is what Paul says. Meaning, don't give up the chase. We lay hold to the eternal blessings of God and glory, but we can have constant communion with God today. And some of us just pray to pray. Some of us, we do it for the religious exercise itself. Because you're in church, and we said today's a week of prayer. And you said, well, we're Christians, we're religious people, this is what we're supposed to do. My grandma did this, my grandpa did this, I should do this too. And prayer for the religious form of prayer itself is not honoring to God. Prayer in its purest form is a chase, a desire to lay hold of the hand of God himself. To say, God, I know I see you. And I know you see me, and I love you, and I want to walk with you. We, um, we never see prayer in the Bible as a dull, repetitive, dry motion. Paul says in Romans 15, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, that we ought to strive together with me in prayer. That's what he says. Roman Christians, strive with me together in prayer. Let's get on the hunt. Let's not stop until we get the game. It's a constant fire. It's a constant chase. Prayer is a constant fight. Do you ever fight in prayer? We may think this is an appropriate image of prayer, but I hope we can appreciate it once we see it. One of the reasons that we give up the hunt or call off the dogs in our prayer is because we lack fight. We lack the ability to stick it out with God, to go a few rounds with God. Oftentimes, we find how weak we are, not how strong we are. I can hear somebody saying, what, Jacobson, you want me to fight with God? And I wish that you would. As about, Oh, how I wish that you would spend your days wrestling with your God, showing some fight in you, showing an ounce of caring about this God that we serve. I wish that you would deeply care so much about your father and the, for some of us, the apparent incongruities in our lives that we think we deserve more from him than what he's given us and we're angry about it, we're bitter about it, and it turns us away from him, not towards him in prayer. And prayer is a fight for us to have those edges hammered out in our lives in prayer. I don't know what the injustices are in your mind that you put on God but I wish you would tell him your hurt and your pain. You say, but Dan, I can't fight with God. That's unchristian. I say that's not only Christian, that's faith. 
It was when Jacob wrestled with God and felt the enduring power of God that he learned to walk with a limp in godliness. Have you ever read the Psalms? Literally half of the Psalms are a fight with God. God, this is happening. It feels like you're gone. Are you gone? Come back. The word that we have in the Bible for this is the word lament. It's how we relate to God in our pain. God's given us a motion to go through, an opportunity to come to him with all of our hurts, all of our pains, when life is not good. To cry out and to say, God, this hurts. I'm going through loss. I'm going through grief. I'm going through pain. I'm going through frustration. I need you. Would you be here? When we fight with God, we realize that God has bigger shoulders and a stronger back and gentler hands than we ever imagined. And we find out only in prayer that God can take it. I thank God that prayer can be a fight. Uh, I think if we consider prayer as a constant fight through the lens of Romans chapter 12, 12, Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I told you earlier there's two situations here in, in this mind for Paul, hopefulness and tribulation. Have you ever lost your hope or been swallowed up in a trial? Uh, how should I find joy, Paul? How can I be patient in my tribulation? And Paul says it's prayer which allows us to fight for joy. And it's prayer that allows us to fight the urge to squirm out from underneath our tribulation and our trial, the trial in which we know that God is using to shape us and purify us. And prayer is how we fight our battles. Man, if I was in a Pentecostal church, that would have really worked. <laughs> but we're like recovering Baptists, so I don't fight battles. I just learn theology. I was, um, I found myself this week robbed of my joy. I found myself really impatient this week. Um, aside from recovering from being sick, which is fine, I'm grateful for health. There were just some situations in our family this week uh, that required my attention, extra attention. There are some problems that we've got in front of us, some expensive problems that seem to be outside of my control, and nothing's working. And Thursday, um, I came home from the office, and Thursday is my night to hang out with the kids as Kristen comes and hangs out with the women. And uh, it's a beautiful time for me to, to hang with my, my family. And I got home. And it was one of those moments where I just was so, you know? Kristen tried to talk to me, tried to say, oh, hey, this is going, oh, yeah, blah, blah. And then, you know, all, there's so much exciting things happening in her life. And I was just like, and, and I had that moment where I had to go. I had to go into my room. I had to lock the door. Not because of my kids, but I just knew that if they interrupted me, my heart would never come down. And I got on my knees next to my bed and fought with God. Fought for peace. Fought for hope. Fought for joy. Fought for patience in the midst of it all. Pounding my cushions of my mattress pleading with God, decrying the unfairness of some things going on in my life, bringing it to him. And over the course of what must have only been 20 or 30 minutes, 
the battle is not over, but the burden was lifted. Too many of us don't fight. We don't fight for joy. We don't fight for patience. We just let things happen. As if that was a spiritual way to live our lives. And in prayer, we fight our battles. And when we feel the outside forces of this world are pushing in on us, I think we ought to grab that childlike taunt that you threw out on the playground and throw it at the devil and say, you can't take my joy, you can't rob my hope because my dad is bigger. You want to take a swing at me? You got to go through him. And when we hit our knees, we aren't giving up. We're just finding our power. And some trust in chariots. Some trust in military technology. Some trust in health masks. But we trust in the name of the Lord. And this is prayer. It's a constant fire. It's a constant chase. It's a constant fight. And constant prayer reminds us that we are constantly children. And since we're constantly children, by definition, God is our constant father. I've learned so much from watching my kids grow up about our relationship that we have with God as a child. A few days ago, um, my children um, lost their privileges to a device in our home because they were using it in a way that I thought was just not becoming. And instead of actually taking the time to parent my kids, explain to them what a better way to do things or why they were, I just took it away from them. I think I even muttered, like, you're never getting this back. <laughs> I put it, I hit it, and then I, um, I forgot about it. And a few days later, Miles, my, my little son, he's going to be five years old this week. It's kind of how I track time with the campus. Miles was born two weeks before we launched the campus. And... Um, Miles came into, came into my room and he said, Dad, do you think we can have our privilege back? Has it been enough time? Just like that. Do you think we could have our privilege back? Has it been enough time? What do you think? And I was so taken aback by his politeness and his implied logic. Honestly, it caught me off guard. And I was intending to throw the thing away, but as I thought about my son coming to me and asking his dad for something, I wanted as a dad to honor his polite request. And because he's my son and I'm his father, I wanted to do good things for him, nice things for him, helpful things for him. And this is prayer. Prayer is going to God as our father. And children communicate with their dads. That's just a... a I know, I know many of us have strained relationships with our dads where we don't communicate. And there's a day for healing for that. But we don't allow the fact that we have poor earthly father, fathers to deter us from the reality that we have wonderful heavenly father. It's for some reason, we think about our relationship with God as a different thing than the way we think about our human relationships um, here, here's how human relationships work that are kind of operating well. Uh, so Kristen and I talk on the phone. You do the same thing with people that you love. We write each other cards or notes. I think I text her on average like 30 times a day. Sometimes we connect with a long talk. Sometimes I send her a thumbs up emoji. And all of that's okay. 
How weird would it be not to text Kristen a thumbs up emoji because I imagine it's some rule in which whenever I wanted to approach her, I have to have at least five minutes or a half an hour carved out or I have to be sitting in a specific chair with a certain type of coffee or at a certain moment of the day or in a specific building. Or I had to feel a certain way or I had to feel like she felt a certain way. No. I just call. I send the thumbs up. We relate. Now listen, I don't feel the same way about my communication styles with Kristen that I feel about some of you. There are moments where if I don't feel well and I feel like I'm going to be hacking on the phone because I'm sick, I'm not going to call you. Um, there are moments where I'm in a crowded restaurant and I think uh, of praying for one of you and I want to tell that to you, but I'm not going to call you right then and there because it would be inappropriate. I feel, I feel insecure about, well, they're going to think that I called from a crowded place and they can't hear me and it's going to be awkward and the message isn't going to get through. I'll just wait until later. Some of you, um, I just think now is not a good time. That's, that's what I think. I think now is just not a good time. I... Um, I accidentally texted Daniel on his day off on Friday. And um, I didn't know it was his day off, but I found out afterwards, and I immediately felt bad. I felt bad. I was like, oh, now's not a good time to talk about this. We can talk about this later. He doesn't have to bother himself with the work. The day off is a really important thing for somebody who works at a church. I'm going to let him have it. Um, but there's no such thing as now is not a good time with family, particularly with your dad. No, if you're sick, you call them and tell them. If you're in a crowded restaurant and they call, you pick it up anyway. If they're in a meeting and they, if you're in a meeting and they call, I, I will interrupt a meeting and say, oh, I'm sorry, that's my dad. He never calls, so here, talk to him. Why? Because the person's more than a friend, they're family. And God is not your boss. He's your father. Always. So are you sick? Pray. Are you rejoicing? Give thanks to God in prayer. Are you in a tribulation? Tell him. Are you angry? God can take it. He's the best dad that you've never had. And he's the best dad that we all have. One of the ways we talk about the quality of our childhood is by the question, like, what were your parents like when you were growing up? Were they overbearing? Were they absent? Did something happen? Were they harsh? Were they loving? With the exception of Disney movies who depict childhood as a parentless existence, we often cast our imagination of childhood in light of our parents. Friends, here's what I want to say to us this week. As, As Christians, we have the best childhood because we have the best fatherhood, the fatherhood of God. He's a constant father. He's a warrior dad. He's a provider. He's life-giving. He's generous. He's forgiving. He's faithful. Because of him, we're secure. And he wants us always to be constant in 